electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here is what's ahead this hour. Labor is cooling. Yields are stabilizing. But the drama in Washington is heating up. And so is America's labor movement. And one weapon the Fed has to pull off a soft landing could also end up backfiring. So happy Wednesday, everyone. We'll explain all of that ahead. Plus, if you're a company that has a big chunk of debt coming due, this timing couldn't be worse. That's exactly why Gina Sanchez is bailing on this name. She has two more and one she likes, a special rising rates edition of three buys and a bail coming your way. And Carter Worth gives us his two cents on the dollar. The chart master here with this latest move on the greenback. We're also talking rates and macro. But we begin with today's markets. And Dom Chu is here to run us through the numbers. And better look than lately, Dom. Better look solidly higher and just tilting towards the highs of the session right now. But the caveat is we haven't gotten back what we lost just in yesterday's trade. But to that point, Kelly, the Dow Industrials are up about one quarter of one percent, 69 points to the upside, 33,000 072. The S&P 500 still above the 4,200 mark. 4,251 the last trade there, up 21 points, half of 1%. At the highs of the session, we were up 28 points on the S&P, down nine points at the low. So again, tilting towards the higher end of things. And the Nasdaq Composite doubling up the advance of the S&P 500. It's now up 1%, 130 points for the Composite Index, 13,189 the last trade there. Of course, rates, as Kelly points out, still a huge focus for the markets. At one point today, earlier this morning, we did touch a new cycle high going all the way back to now August of 2007. So this 10-year, two-year spread, you can still see, continues to steepen on this side here. There is a little bit less pressure to the upside on prices on the shorter end of things. But still, there's buying pressure there. We'll see what happens. But that spread still continuing to the upside. That 10-year note yield, by the way, did again hit that cycle high going all the way back to 2007. That's the rate side of things. There are reverberations. Despite some of those rates and then the, the levels that they continue to sit at, we did see a little bit of a pullback. It's helping at least incrementally, part of a bigger picture and why that tech trade is a little bit more to the upside today. Apple shares up about one-third of 1%. A rare downgrade today from key bank capital markets to sector weight. They think that the iPhone upgrade cycle may be losing a little bit of momentum this time around. Valuation is also near all-time highs. Microsoft up 1.5%. Alphabet up near 2%. Amazon 1.5% gains. And NVIDIA 1% gains there. But again, Bigger sell-off yesterday, bit of a bounce back today. We'll see if it sticks, Kel. I'll send things back over to you. Dom, thank you very much, Dom Chu. Now to the growing concerns about the U.S. economy, especially after the weaker-than-expected ADP report this morning. It came in below forecast, showing we only added 89,000 jobs in the private sector in September, the fewest since Jan of 21. And while it might give cover for the Fed to stop hiking rates, it also raises concerns that a recession is looming. But my next guests say a soft landing is still possible, due in part to the Fed's massive balance sheet. Here with me, Tom Porcelli is chief U.S. economist at PGIM Fixed Income. David Zervos is chief market strategist at Jefferies and CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman is here with us as well. Full house. 
appreciate everybody being here. Tom, let me just start with you. Why do you think soft landing hopes are still alive? You know, I think that there, there are a couple of factors that really sort of, I think, drive that point home. One, remember those revisions from last week? GDP? Um, yeah, exactly. Well, all of a sudden now, you know, miraculously now there's, you know, $400 billion extra in excess savings, right? So um, not, still the trend is still definitively down. Um, but, uh, you know, that's a very deep pool for the consumer to sort of dip into. Um, wage pressures, yes, they're slowing. Um, but again, it's really easy to make the case that they hang in there. And so the consumer still has this pool. I mean, the pool is, is, is being more restricted or constricting, I should say. Um, but for now, it's, I think, easy to make the case that the it's consumer can the, certainly hang in there. Sort of the Goldman camp, too, but it, w- it would hinge on the labor market continuing it, to hang in there, it, right? It, I mean, that, that's why the ADP number, you know, it's a little discomforting. It, it is. I mean, I have to be totally honest. I'm not a big fan of the ADP report. Mm-hmm. I just I tend to fade it. Um, uh, you know, as a great example, uh, large companies shed 32,000 jobs um, uh, this month, but they've been shedding jobs like straight through. I mean, when they shed jobs two months ago yeah. um, per ADP, you had a 480,000 printed ADP, right? So it's like uh, I, there's a lot going on underneath the surface there. But what I would say is, look, job growth is slowing down. I mean, that's not a guess. I mean, I don't know if I would you sort of just lean on ADP in isolation. What I would instead say is, if you just look at the payroll report, you know, every single month for the last year, it's done nothing but slow down. Right, you know, particularly exactly. if you strip out healthcare workers, yeah. which I think is really important. Um, so we're, we're, we're getting there. And, and the risk for us, right, the risk to the soft landing idea is exactly what you highlight. If, if you consider the idea that right now, um, compensation is running at a faster pace than revenue. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not a tenable setup for, um, for corporate earnings. For corporations, yeah. exactly. And, and, and what it could really amount to is a sort of a margin compression story. Mm-hmm. And so if that materializes, I think it's really easy to make the case that you could see companies basically go after labor, which is, would be a classic approach. And it's interesting to hear you look at the stock of savings because Dave is focused on the stock of QE. Well, stock of bonds still on the Fed's balance sheet more broadly, which you think is the reason why the economy hasn't done as poorly as people thought it would by now with all of these rate hikes. Yeah, Kelly, we've, we've chatted about this a lot over the course of the year. I think we've all, you know, throughout this entire post-global financial crisis period, back to 708, tried to get our head around what QE does, what QT does. Right. It's, does it even work? Yeah. And, and I think what we've all kind of at least I've come to grips with, and I, I certainly believe, is that it's a much more powerful tool than, um, than maybe many had originally thought. And when we take it away, it's powerful. When we add it in, it's powerful. And the reality is we still have a lot of QE in our system. Why does it matter so much? Because most people would say, okay, even if you're right that it's powerful, all that matters is the flow. So we're not buying bonds anymore. We're selling them. And that's the single biggest reason why rates are suddenly spiking, right? Huge issuance, not a lot of buyers. That's all that matters. But you think the story is more complex. Well, remember, uh, the Fed's balance sheet on the asset side is the bonds, but on the liability side, it's liquidity. It's high-powered money. It's reserves. It's cash. It's the lifeblood of liquidity for the economy. And we have uh, $8 trillion of that in our system. If we were to take that back to pre-GFC levels and say the balance sheet was the same size as a percentage of the economy in 07, it would only be $1.3 trillion. We have a lot of liquidity in the system, and that sticks with that. That level matters. But more importantly, and I think part of what we've pushed with clients this year is that the Fed's ownership of those bonds, of those $8 trillion of 30-year mortgages and 30-year treasuries, some that are trading at 40 cents on the dollar. Exactly. That's where the losses are. Yeah, it it insulated the market from a lot of losses, and those losses weren't distributed into the system. And there were gains. People who locked in low rates benefited. People who didn't uh, did not. And I think we didn't have that offset that we usually do, which is winners and losers when, they're, when rates go up. We had a lot of winners, low coupon mortgages uh, that were held in the Fed's balance sheet, 
insulated the street from the losses. And that, Steve, so so the question has kind of gone back and forth from is the economy about to weaken or where are all of the blowups or a la 1994, which one's going to be the Orange County? That, get, that was right. mortgages, I think, in that right. case that, yeah. caught, that caught them up. Inverse But in this case, they're all in the Fed's balance sheet. You're, you're, you're so familiar with this stuff, uh, Kelly. You're talking shorthand. Just so you know, there's two kinds of economists out there. There's stock and flow. Yeah, you're right. Right? There's those who say it's the flow into QE. And those who say, no, it's the amount that the Fed has taken off. That's the stock. And guys in the back, here's a test for you live on national television. <laughs> the chart that you put up at the Fed balance sheet, to really show David's point, please take it back to before 2020. Mm. Okay, because you show it going down, but that's not David's point. David's point is, even after taking a trillion off of it, it remains massive. So I don't know if they can get that done in the I'm back. Sure, I should yeah. have prepared for it. No, but, but again, I should, I, should, I should divine what Zervos is going to say. And he's not even saying we <laughs> have to go event, back. It's very important. But here's the thing. There's three things that are animating yields right now. And I think in the last couple of days, we've gotten a good example of how the growth story is animating yields. Okay. We had the, the jolts number created a jolt in yields upward. And this ADP number, there you go. Now we're talking $4 trillion to still just under $8 trillion. That's I'll make that point there. If you're driving in, in the radio, it goes up. It goes uh, pretty much sideways. Okay. So um, uh, there's, 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 there's growth. There's also issuance, which I, David and I disagree. We had a, a chat in the background. I think that there was surprises to the issuance calendar, and you, comp- you combine that with the Fed not being a better buyer here, and I think that – but there's a bigger story, a longer-term story, which is the increase in the neutral rate. Powell talked about this, the idea that the steady-state rate of the, uh, for the economy, one that doesn't increase inflation or increase uh, uh, unemployment, is – a higher rate than it was. It had come down over a 30-year period of two and a half. Now we're trying to figure out, it's a bit like saying, okay, it was used to be 10 yards for a first down. It might be 12 now, it might be 14. We don't really know yeah. anymore what, that, what the rule of the game is anymore. Right. Uh, but more and more there's talk because of this rise in yields, having been one that did not come along with an increase in inflation expectations. Mm-hmm. It is a real yield rise. Yes. And therefore, people are saying, well, maybe that neutral rate, which Powell said it is possible that it's higher, is higher now than it was before. Let me ask you, if I can, Dave, about the deficit, because obviously right now this is the major question. And it's, it does seem as though people are, are waking up and going, OK, wow, the fiscal picture is a lot worse this year than we had expected. And we don't have those structural buyers of treasuries anymore, right? Foreign ownership has gone down from 50% to 35, I think, of treasuries. The stock of treasuries has gone from $5 trillion on the market to $25 trillion. The Fed's not buying. The banking system isn't really buying. So is this massive imbalance at driving yields higher, do you think? I, I do want to come back. to Steve yeah. made some really important points that I'd really like to yeah, work yeah, on. But, but I, I think you're, you're, you're right to, to focus on the fiscal. And turn to me to try to debunk it a little because I'm going to do that. You know, the the rise in yields from the lows has been about 435 or 425 base points in 10-year yields since the COVID lows of around 50 bips. In Germany, the yields are up about 385, 90 basis points. And in the UK, they're up more than in the US. So yields have risen in Germany in a pretty similar fashion and UK in a pretty similar fashion to the US yields in 10 years. Are we talking about German fiscal policy running wild? Are we talking about UK fiscal policy running wild? I'm not exactly sure why we're so focused on this 10-year yield move being driven by fiscal when it's a global phenomenon. Yields are higher in most developed markets, even in Australia and other countries. So 
again, I, I don't want to get caught up in fiscal. I think fiscal is not the story. There's some issuance, and there's some issues probably related to Japanese yield curve control that, that did right. play right. a factor in our long end a little bit. But the big story, the really big story is, you know, Steve was in the room for it, too, with, with Jay. When Jay started to talk about the difference between the long run rate yeah. and the neutral rate, something that they've never really right. tortured out of, mm-hmm. uh, of the discussion. And I'm not sure really Jay understood exactly where he was going. He was sort of throwing <laughs> that out at us. I think but that's very fair. The, the point is the neutral rate may be higher for the next two or three years because the balance sheet is so large. You can't talk about a neutral interest rate without a neutral balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Both are policy tools, and, and they both have to be put in unison to talk about whether policy is accommodative. The balance sheet is massively accommodative. That means in order to be neutral overall, the neutral rate will have to be higher than what you normally would be without a massive balance To the dismay of anyone trying to get a mortgage right now. Yeah. Yes. But, but let me, because I think, I think David makes some really great points. I, I would add to that. I, just think about, like, if, if you didn't have a Federal Reserve, um, but you had like some short rate, like what would the short rate gravitate to? The short rate would almost always gravitate toward what sort of trend growth is. And if you look at over the last decade or so, there's been a massive divergence between trend growth and, and the long run neutral rate. Um, I think what's going to happen now is that the long run neutral rate is actually going to drift back toward where it was supposed to be, which is, say, closer to trend growth. So hmm. I, I think it's like a, to me, it's a foregone conclusion that it's going to rise. I want to make one point, just sort of answering a question that Kelly made earlier, which is, yeah, I am beginning to worry about the financial system here. I mean, I think that there have been, this has been a big move. And I I think those on the Fed who think the lags are already in the price, I think are wrong about that. Um, I believe it was, um, it might have been Bostic yesterday who said there's a lot of corporate debt that needs to refi. That's a drag coming on the economy. That is going to, in part, do more of the Fed's work. It's important to remember that on this show yesterday, 24 hours ago, Bostic became the first Fed official to use the term sufficiently restrictive. That's the ding button. That's the thing that turns off the spigot for for more rates. However, he paired that with the notion of, I I think the next Fed move, he said, is one cut at the end of next year. So that's the higher for longer mantra that the market has to digest. And I just think we're going to be in a process here, up and down, you know, in and out, that that we're going to adjust all asset prices to an idea, at least for a while, of higher for longer. And, and actually, I'm sorry, David, okay. um, I'll make this really quick point. But to Steve, again, great point. Look at today's ISM services. Now, forget yeah. about the numbers, the indexes. I, I, I have no patience for those things. Instead, look at the, um, the responding comments. And within the responding comments, for the first time, and the first time that I can remember um, recently, you actually had um, one segment basically say, hey, one sector basically say, hey, look, Credit is now actually becoming much more of a problem. We're starting to see it choke off some business. And they mm-hmm. actually, and then they made some comment about, uh, you know, bankruptcies. I mean, I, I've not heard that before. Yeah. Um, not, not recently. I just think it's, it's so it's, and by the way, I, sorry, David, when, when you think about um, if it's everywhere, if it's littered all through the ISM services or any other report, then it's too late, right? It's already in your totally. face. So this is totally. like a, the first time I've seen it. Just sorry, so, David. So just, just to be clear, what, what Steve is saying is that the most dovish guy on the committee basically right. doesn't see a rate cut until right. December <laughs> right. next year. Right, now, right. Juxtapose that with where we started this year. The That's market a great was point, pricing David. rate cuts yep. today. Yeah. yeah. The market was pricing a recession today. For the now. surveys of professional forecasters had recessions. The majority of forecasters had recessions yeah. now. When you were sitting in a meeting at the beginning of this year, a risk committee meeting, you said, hey, what do we do? Do we take 
a lot of risk, credit risk or equity risk. Well, let's talk to our economists. Let's look what's priced into the market. And everybody's saying there's going to be rate cuts in a recession. Do you think people took a lot of credit risk and took a lot of equity risk? No, they didn't. Let me guess. They took duration risk well, because that's where they thought they would make money. And the fixed income guys have been buying duration from 330 to 350 to 370 because that was the trade if you believed we were going to slow down and the Fed was going to cut rates. And now that's blown up. And they've gotten killed. Exactly. We have bad positions. The market was mispriced for, for the amount of growth that there was. So let Absolutely. me ask you, Dave, especially as kind of the one who also wears an investment hat here. So put a pin in it for investors then. We have on the, on the one hand people saying we're going to have a rip roaring rally into year end. On the other hand, people saying the 60-40 portfolio is dead. And what would what would you say this boils down to? I, look, I, I think we're in a much more sensibly priced structure than we were even two or three months ago when we were pricing in 125 base points of rate cuts next year between December of this year and December of next year. It's it, the market's in a better place. The rate structure's in a better place. Some people have lost a lot of money. I don't know how much more there is to go in the fixed income repricing. Maybe these bad positions have to get flushed and you go to five or five and a quarter. And there's going to be some pain. The Fed wants a little pain. They want to slow it down. They want people to, to pull back on projects and they want people. And it sounds bad, but they want people to get fired. They want the unemployment rate at four and a quarter to four and a half. They feel right. more comfortable there. So all that's going in the right direction for the Fed. Yeah, I, 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 I will say, though, Steve, the 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 bigger picture story of how this market goes into the end of the year is if we are in a higher real rate or higher neutral real rate structure for the next couple of years, that hurdle for capital gains and equities is so much higher. And so it's a carry trade. I tell all of our investors, collect carry, go to credit, stay out of duration. We've been leverage loans, CLOs, and high yield bonds. You're sticking with that even as it's starting to turn? Absolutely. All right. Because that's a, look, Mm. the levered loan market has been wonderful because it's not a derated product. You look at Invesco's and Janice's levered loan funds, they're doing great. That's the place I'm telling people to be in. You can have a little, like high yield is generally a sub five year, you know, even high high yield is not a long duration. You look at the LQD total return for the year versus the HYG total return for the year. HYG is outperforming significantly, and rightly so. But even spreads though it's are a widening right asset. now a little bit. So and they're trying to get into the idea that there may be some default risk in there. They're, these, they're, these and you know what? You know, Tom's 100% right. There are more risks on the horizon now as rates bite and people have to refinance. Kelly, but again, I, 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 I just, one important I think point, it's a trade. One important point, Ten which seconds. is that I am as tall or taller than Tom. <laughs> But because of the shot that Tom appears to have paid extra for, I did. he appears taller in the thing there. They said to me, who should there. sit in the middle? I, I just said, want that clear. Probably okay? my 5'7 proudly. <laughs> I might be We're the Just increasing one hair as we move exactly. down. Yeah. As we Thank move down the Thank you all very much. We really, really appreciate it today. Tom Porcelli, David Servos, and our own Steve Leesman. We will have much more to come, by the way, on, on that point uh, we were just making. And the deficit, meantime, let's get the latest on the drama in D.C. after Kevin McCarthy yesterday became the first ever House Speaker to be voted out of that position. Now lawmakers are treading water weeks ahead of another potential shutdown. Here to discuss that impact from Washington to Wall Street, Jerry Seib is former executive Washington editor at the Wall Street Journal, and Jarrett Seberg is financial services and housing policy analyst at T.D. Cowan Washington Research Group. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Jerry, I, I feel like I, we, we, we asked if you could come out of retirement for this because it's just so extraordinary the past 24 hours. What are your thoughts? 
Well, look, it doesn't feel like it came out of retirement because this story hasn't changed. I mean, there, there are three things to keep in mind here. One is we are in totally uncharted waters here. You know, we've never done this. Nobody's ever done this before. So I don't know what happens next. But uh, second point is this is just a continuation of a decade plus long fight within the Republican Party between more traditional conservatives and more populist Republicans. You know, John Boehner got worn out by that and went away. Paul Ryan got worn out by that and went away. Eric Cantor got kicked out and now Kevin McCarthy. Um, this is this is a struggle that is not resolved. It's underway and it's continuing and it's going to continue, which is going to produce some continued uh, uncertainty. And I think that leads to the third point here, which is nothing's been resolved. We have no answer to any questions about who's going to be the leader that emerges from all this, much less how the House is going to resolve the issues about spending and immigration in Ukraine that threatened to shut down the government a week ago and that will threaten to shut down the government again in November. And Jerry, you're, as you're sort of pointing out, look, we're in uncharted territory with the Speaker's pro tem, especially when it comes to handling, drumroll please, the spending bill. Yeah, right. exactly. It, exactly. Uh, you know, I mean, I think the big challenge here is that we have an acting Speaker. We've never had this before. No one really knows what powers he has. And in fact, he might be much more powerful than everyone realizes. Uh, you know, if nobody objects, uh, you know, he might be the one who has to take the arrow for the rest of the Republican conference, cut a deal, uh, and then you can have the, the um, leadership election for speaker. Because otherwise, you know, as we were just discussing, I don't know how they get to a deal on the budget. You know, the very, um, you know, the very details that cause Kevin McCarthy to lose his job uh, that's the same deal that the new Republican leader is going to have to take. It's not like there's going to be radical change. So, Jared, what would you say to investors here? And I'm not sure which investors I'm even talking about, right? I mean, <laughs> there's Treasury investors who I know we were just debating it, but are worried about uh, deficits. You know, there's investors in all sorts of policy areas that could potentially be affected by this. What jumps to the forefront of your mind? You, they're just not going to get any other real legislation done until the lame duck. And so if there's a bill that you're worrying about, um, you know, that, that worry can be a lot less. The possible exception is flood insurance. There has to be a deal on flood insurance. Uh, I can't believe that we're really going to shut down 9,000 mortgage closings a week uh, after November 17th. Uh, but beyond a, a couple of few things, uh, I would essentially view this Congress as closed until after the election. And Jerry Seib, what further implications do you see from that? Well, I think you're, you're going to, uh, first of all, there's one big one that doesn't affect the markets necessarily directly, but I think is really important, which is aid to Ukraine. I mean, uh, it's going to be hard in this environment, uh, and that's an important priority for the Biden administration, for a lot of Republicans, and for the country. And I think that is hanging out there as a big, big question mark. I think beyond that, the idea that you're going to have some kind of a coming together now as you have at various times in the last two decades to have a sensible fiscal package that tries to address the deficit without creating shockwaves. You know, that's been done in Washington periodically over the last two decades. I just don't see how that happens in this environment. And so I think anybody who's looking for sensible fiscal policy to come out of this scenario, this picture that we're talking about, is going to be sorely disappointed. So that's the other thing that would worry me. How do you resolve very important budget issues um, in a time when that does matter to the markets? And I just don't see that happening. Yeah, yeah fair enough. And Jared, go ahead, last word. Oh, I was just saying, if I can add there, don't forget what's looming on the horizon. 
all the Trump tax cuts, uh, you know, all the key ones for business, those all, um, you know, we have a lot and consumers, those start expiring in 2025. And so somewhere we're going to have to get the money to fund that. We're going to need, uh, you know, you know, both sides of the aisle, both sides of Capitol Hill to come together on that. And so if we can't even fund the government, uh, I do think the risk of what's going to happen to all those tax cuts is much higher than the market uh, is taking. Yeah. Guys, thank you both. We really appreciate your thoughts today on a a hectic 24 hours in Washington, and it it ain't over yet. Jarrett Seberg and Jerry Seib, appreciate it very much. Coming up, the 10-year yield on the back of all of this, surging to 16-year highs this morning. So which companies are most at risk from soaring borrowing costs? We've got a special edition of three bales and a buy next with our trader warning that more pain is on the way. Plus, the rapid rise in rates comes after a decade-long boom in private credit. But are those companies similarly at risk of higher-than-expected defaults? We'll speak with the head of Morgan Stanley's private credit business about the sectors and criteria they're lending to in this tight environment. As we head to break, here's a check on markets as the Dow's gains are evaporating. It's up seven points, but the S&P has a little more margin, up a third of 1%, much bigger margin for the Nasdaq, up nine-tenths. The Russell 2000s are lower by three points, and the 10-year yield is pulled back to 4.73. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Remember the Thai cave rescue? What about the mission depicted in Black Hawk Down or the epic rescue shown in Captain Phillips? You've probably heard of all of these, but did you know that the U.S. Air Force Special Warfare played a pivotal role in all of them? These airmen are the most highly trained warriors on the planet. Other forces like the SEALs and Army Rangers call on them to provide skills no one else can. Not many people make the cut. If you think you can, visit AirForce.com to learn more. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Yields are pulling back slightly today, but still near 16-year highs on the 10-year as the bond route persists. And my next guest says there's more pain to come, but that will bring us back to stock picking fundamentals. So what names should you stay away from and where are the best opportunities? Joining me now is Gina Sanchez, Lido Advisors Chief Market Strategist. And this is three bales and a buy, Gina, because with rising rates, they are vicious. Welcome. Uh, and let's start with the TLT. This is not really a stock, but it's an important one to highlight because some people are bottom fishing right now. Uh, it's down 16 percent since July, as I've heard, it's lost half its value from the highs. But you still wouldn't be a buyer here of this long Treasury bond, would you? No, we wouldn't. We are looking at, you know, the yield curve has been inverted for so long, predicting the recession that just won't come. And even though we're probably going to get maybe a little bit of a slowdown, at the end of the day, the short end is not coming down, which means in order to get a normally shaped yield curve, the long end has to come up and it's not done yet. 
it still has to continue to price in at least some semblance of growth and probably permanently slightly higher inflation than we're used to. Um, deglobalization is driving up inflation um, and, and other factors that are sort of going to keep inflation a little higher than, than we've gotten used to. So that long end has got a lot more pain to go. All right. So that's kind of the perfect backdrop to segue into some of your stocks, uh, which could be under pressure as a result, namely Ford. A lot of people talking about this because of the union strikes, but it's down more than 20 percent since the summer, uh, facing a slew of headwinds that include that, but also its high debt load. Yeah, you know, the problem with Ford is they had to take on quite a bit of debt during the pandemic, and uh, a third of that debt is coming due in the next 12 months. That's a big hunk of debt to have to refinance at significantly different rates. And so profitability is already under pressure. They're having a lot of issues with getting their, you know, EV game on. The strikes do not help. And so you have a lot of issues just pushing the the, the business, um, you know, and take on top of that higher yields for a third of its debt load, that's a big challenge. I think it's a good example of companies whose debt are about to come due. Be careful of those. Yes, and this has been, obviously, high debt has been plaguing the company for a very long time, and it's like the worst possible time for it all to be coming to a head. Uh, speaking of which, Petco, that's your next stock, also getting a lot of attention and balance sheet scrutiny. It's down nearly 60% over the past three months because of this pressure, and it hit all-time lows yesterday. So you think it can, I mean, it's under a $4 stock at this point. Yeah, you know, the problem with Petco is that they have the problem that they have floating rate debt. So mm -hmm. it's not like a bunch of fixed rate debt is coming due that used to be cheap. It's that they've just been going up with the markets and their profitability is under pressure. We're seeing them guide down on profitability. And I think that that's going to remain under pressure, you know, regardless of how resilient you think the dog and cat food market is. Um, you know, this company is going to have, you know, continuing troubles um, providing profitability. And in a higher interest rate environment, you don't get great multiples. So you have to perform. You have to be profitable. This is going to be a challenge. Yeah, this feels like a market where narratives die. It doesn't matter if you're in the pet food category. All that matters is the balance sheet uh, with, with rates doing what they are. Uh, so you're, those are your bales. And now the one that you would be buying is Costco. It's up 24% this year. Uh, we all know kind of a stalwart business, but you think especially in a tough rate environment? Yeah, this is a company that has a whistle-clean balance sheet. This is a company that probably has more cash than debt right now. And that is huge. Cash is king when interest rates are going up. Um, and on top of that, this is also a company that is very defensive. It's the kind of company you want to own in a slowdown when people are feeling tight. If you look, you know, just today or yesterday, we saw a stat that came out of the Fed um, showing that the lowest, the, the sort of lowest socioeconomic sectors of the economy are more or less out of savings, which is to say that they're going to have a hard time paying basic, you know, costs. Costco is where you go um, when you're trying to save money. P.E. 37 nearly. Uh, incredible. But again, they're being rewarded for having kind of the right choices now. Gina, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Three bales and a buy. Gina Sanchez, Lido Advisors. Coming up, a welcome break for consumers with oil falling more than 3% today, now down 8% from last week's $95 recent peak. We'll look at what's driving prices lower and what OPEC is signaling after wrapping up its virtual meeting today. But for investors, this drop in crude is dragging the energy sector lower. It's the worst performer in the S&P, followed by utilities, which are now at the lowest level since summer 2020. The exchange is back after this. Dow's negative by 25. Remember the Thai cave rescue? What about the mission depicted in Black Hawk Down or the epic rescue shown in Captain Phillips? 
You've probably heard of all of these, but did you know that the U.S. Air Force Special Warfare played a pivotal role in all of them? These airmen are the most highly trained warriors on the planet. Other forces like the SEALs and Army Rangers call on them to provide skills no one else can. Not many people make the cut. If you think you can, visit AirForce.com to learn more. Welcome back to The Exchange. Crude oil is back below $85 a barrel almost as the sell-off today deepens. It's down almost 5%. Biggest one-day drop since June. Gasoline futures also under pressure, down more than 6% now. And in fact, at their lowest level of the year, right as OPEC has wrapped up its virtual meeting today. Brian Sullivan is here with the latest. Does OPEC have something to do with why? I mean, these are pretty big declines today. Isn't it amazing that, at least on paper, Kelly, there are 3.3 million barrels a day of cuts. Two million from OPEC. We know it's not the actual number because some comp- countries don't meet their quota. A million extra from Saudi Arabia and 300 extra as a cherry on top from Russia. Add that up, 3.3 million. But OPEC math will take that way down. Still, we've got these extended cuts through the end of the year and maybe longer. And the price of oil, while, yes, it is down today and off its high, but let's also not lose sight of the fact that oil is 40% higher than it was four years Did ago. They change, 40% higher. Was there any change in OPEC? So we knew that they had been no. keeping some barrels off the market, and the Saudis in particular, that's been keeping the price high. But but I guess they had two options. They could either increase the cuts because they think that, that oil's going down, or yep. they could Help me, Brian. Yeah, it's OPEC math. Yeah, thank you. Uh, It's like the new math when you have kids and they change division. (laughs) Whatever happened to the remainder, I don't know. Okay, so OPEC is worried about a recession. Okay, now OPEC will say they don't target prices. People can disagree on that, whatever. OPEC is worried about a recession. They're worried about China. You look at Chinese demand, it is not really recovered here. Gasoline demand in America, by the way, the data that just came out about an hour ago, shows, I think, some of the lowest of the year. Really? So you wonder if that signals something. But that aside, oil is still at 87. It's not at $47 a barrel. It is still high. Gasoline in California, on average, according to AAA, $5.97. Wow. OPEC didn't do anything today because they're setting the stage for the in-person. This is a virtual meeting. In-person meeting, November 26th, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Thank you, OPEC, (laughs) because we're going to be there, I think. We'll see if we can get out of the family obligation. So they're setting the table. There's a lot of geopolitical stuff going on here with this normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. True. That is massive. How does Iran react to that if and when that happens? Venezuela has been coming a little more on the market. And according to U.S. data, Kelly, we're 12.9 million barrels a day. The record high, 13. Although traders I talk to say they don't really trust the EIA numbers because they think there's some other liquids thrown in. It's not I mean, pure oil. It would be nice if we've seen the highs for the year for consumers. Now, granted, I'm not, I don't mean this you know, for energy investors, obviously, but they, but they can do well with oil roughly in this range. What you don't want to see is these kind of price spikes that start getting demand destruction and all that. And we're a ways from that, but heading in that neighborhood. I think that's why gasoline demand is down, because it was the highest in at least a decade for this time of year. Prices go up. People are going to drive less. I mean, that, that, especially out west, Seattle, Right. San Francisco, Los Angeles, prices there easily over six dollars, especially don't buy gas right off the interstate. That's where it's always going to be the most expensive. OPEC is trying to kind of they'll say they're kind of trying to manage, balance out the market for what they see. And you can dislike it. But I'll tell you what, OPEC in some ways has been right because everybody thought China was going to come blasting out of covid and they were just going to start driving everywhere and flying everywhere and demand would be they're not. Right. And, and I think, and David Zervos probably would be perfect on it. David, come back. Uh, which is, why isn't the China economy recovering the way many thought it was? That's a big deal. We threw the graphic up. Can we throw it up again? 
Last call tonight, by the way, utilities. We've got the CEO of Exelon. Huge. Nice, Not Exxon. No, Exelon, yeah. which is an excellent on. They're a huge utility in the Midwest, as well as big oil guy, Mark Fisher, last call, 7 p.m. All right, so much more to talk about. That's why you have a whole show. Brian, thank you so much. We'll see you in like seven hours. <laughs> Brian, <laughs> or like five. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Folks, Uruguay, Paraguay, and Argentina will each host an opening match to celebrate the 100 years since the first World Cup. Spain, Portugal, and Morocco will then co-host the tournament. The first game of the tournament in Uruguay will be hosted in the stadium that held the tournament's first ever final back in 1930. Uber is now offering to return your packages for you. Both Uber and Uber Eats will provide a return package feature that will allow customers to send up to five packages back to a UPS, FedEx, or USPS location. The service costs a flat fee of $5 or $3 for Uber One members. Uh, and it's available in dozens of major metro areas across the country. And just in time for Halloween, a steep rise in the price of cocoa and sugar are set to hit lovers of candy and other sweets right in the wallet. Sugar prices hit their highest level in 12 years recently, cocoa reaching a four-decade high. The increase is being driven by supply fears, extreme weather conditions in Asia and West Africa, threatening production. Kelly... Then I am Can handing out candy corn. Candy's costing more. Yeah, I'm going the non-chocolate route. Tyler, thank you. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, iShares high-yield corporate bond ETF selling off and hovering near its lowest level of the year as yields surge amid concerns about rising defaults. Does that put the private credit industry at risk as well? We'll ask Morgan Stanley's head of private lending about that next. Welcome back to The Exchange. The private credit industry exploded during the era of ultra-low interest rates. According to data firm Prequin, the global private credit market has tripled just since 2015 and has been expected to grow to $2.3 trillion in the next four years. It's also become an important source of capital in private equity dealmaking and is now recognized as an alternative investment, gaining popularity in investors' portfolios. But could the industry face steeper-than-expected losses amid soaring interest rates? My next guest says no. Joining me now now for more is Ashwin Krishnan. He's co-head of private credit at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Welcome to you. Hi, Kelly. Good to be with you. So, you know, private credit, I think for a lot of people, just sounds complex and, and complicated. Let's remind it, what, what, what are we talking about exactly? Yeah, at its core, it's really the lending function broken down into a direct relationship between the lender slash investor and the borrower. So you have a bilateral negotiated deal that each party agrees to and gets into. And the reason why we think it makes a lot of sense is you have the time to do your underwriting and put in place a set of loan agreements and terms that you feel comfortable with. Are most, how much proportion of this debt is floating rate? Most of it. Yeah. I, would, I would wager to guess close to 90%, if not more. Which would be great for the investors if, if floating rate, you know, if we're to going from 6 to 8% or something, and, and I know in some cases we're talking about 12%, but now I wonder this week especially if rates are getting so high that we're starting to see investors flip and worry about defaults. And we used Petco as one example, obviously, of a company whose debt servicing costs are crowding out their earnings almost completely. How, how much of a default problem could the industry be facing if you'll stay where they are for a lot of these companies? Yeah, it's a great question and one that we're focused on. Ultimately, it will depend upon where the economy goes. But if you think about it, most of private credit lending is at the top of the balance sheet. So the most secure part in the capital structure of these companies. Most often you have other institutional investors alongside you 
equity, subordinated debt, et cetera. So you tend to be in a spot where incentives are aligned and everyone wants to work to a good outcome. That being said, the closest proxy to a default cycle is tracking middle market loan data going back 15 years. And what we've observed is that when you look at that data, it has actually tended to perform better than broadly syndicated in public credit. Uh, and so that's a function for few factors, but that's what the data suggests. Although the industry is also so new, you know, for, forget private credit. I mean, very few people in the public markets or in, in, in the business, broadly speaking, have been through a high rate environment in their careers. And now this entire industry is about to be tested by an experience that it's never been through before. I mean, did this industry even exist about a decade ago? Not in the form that it is today. You're, you're right. It was, it was sort of a niche industry. It has scaled. It has garnered investor appetite and allocation. And that's generally a good thing because you want more sources of capital at the table. Uh, lendings occurred, of course, always in the private markets, but not in the scaled way that we're seeing today. And so what do you think the next kind of six to 12 months look like? Um, as you said, so much depends on the economy. And if companies start to run into trouble, do they, you know, if you were a bank extending these loans, I, I guess at some point they could come to the bank or the loan officer and try to work that out. What happens in this case? How does that adjustment work if an adjustment needs to be made? Yeah, I think you'll find 99% of the time that people tend to be rational, rational about what needs to get done, right? There's a few options you can go down. Usually proactive management is the way you do it by raising incremental capital, be it equity, structured equity, some kind of structured solution. And there's a large and growing market for that as well. Uh, asset sales, cost mitigation, we're focused on it. Uh, on, on the front foot, investing into this environment is good, but we have portfolios to manage, and that's topic number one for all our portfolio companies. Where do you feel most comfortable still extending credit? In the most defensive sectors, and that's been a core philosophy of ours, high free cash flow generation, and typically asset light industries, because they don't chew up capital. So you have a tremendous amount of operating earnings to cash flow conversion, and that'll remain the case because it gives you a buffer when, when things go sideways, and that's what we always underwrite to as well. Does that mean technology asset light, or is that is, is technology a big part of this? Yeah, software, software. companies? Software, yeah, long, predictable particular. contracts, uh, throw off a lot of free cash flow, business services, insurance brokerages. Those are typically assets and companies where there has been a good amount of private credit capital formation. So that would lead you to believe that the default outcomes would also be reasonably robust. Better. Absolutely. Uh, well, we really appreciate you, Ashwin, coming and talk to us about it today. Uh, it, interesting juncture, I would say, for this whole industry. Appreciate your time. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Ashwin Krishnan joining us from Morgan Stanley. Still ahead, the Dow negative by eight points again, now on track for a four-day losing streak, but the Nasdaq clocking the biggest gain. We were just talking about software. Uh, it's up about three quarters of one percent. Tesla is one of the best performers on the Nasdaq 100 as well today. Good for about 21 points on a four percent pop. Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas re Reiterating his overweight rating, but warning sales numbers do show Tesla's EV market share is falling and now sits at less than 50%. We'll get a check on that and some other big movers today next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow is negative just by six points, though high was 130 positive, low was 130 negative. So we're right in the middle. S&P up 12 points today. NASDAQ driving the gains by 105. As we mentioned, Tesla is helping with that. Still ahead, crude oil lower today and down 9% over the past week. Technician Carter Worth warned that drop was coming, saying he wasn't buying the street hype, that the dollar yields and oil could keep moving higher in tandem. So if crude's the first shoe to drop, are yields next? 
He'll tell us after the break. Welcome back to The Exchange. Yields testing new 2007 highs today, while the dollar sits at year highs. But my next guest isn't buying the hype on either, saying both are due for a pullback. Joining me is Carter Worth, founder and CEO of Worth Charting. Carter, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Thank you so much. Which I one? Mean, go ahead. I, yeah, I was going to say, but, but maybe you're going to say it for me. Which one do you have the most conviction about right now? Well, so I think it, it, in tandem, right, uh, rates surging, oil surging, dollars surging. And yet, really, it's just about sequencing. It's not about one's long-term view, at least from my seat, right? It's trying to come to a judgment when something is overdone, has swung too far in one direction. Usually, it's right to be on trend, to respect trend. But we have a circumstance, and you're seeing it now in the oil market, first, where everyone's on one side, and all of a sudden, we just drop $10 a barrel of out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. It's really the same setup, I would say, uh, Kelly, as it was in May, June. Oil was at $65 a barrel, and it was consensus. We're going a lot lower, a recession, hard landing. All of a sudden, four months later, we're, we hit 93, 95. We're going to 100. Uh, oil's got much more to go. So I think when you get so much crowding, and the sequence calls for a counter trend, try to play for it. So that brings up yields and, and the dollar. It's the same thing. Think in May, June, right in there, uh, uh, the dollar was basically at 52-week lows. Dollar's going to go lower. Rates were at 3.5, hard landing. Now, all of a sudden, the exact opposite. And I think when you get steep and uncorrected, whether it's to the downside or to the upside, well, it's very hard to time it. One should try. And, and my judgment is the timing here is to be buying bonds. Uh, and to be fading the dollar. And so this all to you um, is related, meaning, and, and the fund, a lot of the fundamental people would say the same thing, but you see yields falling, dollar falling, oil falling. Um, what, what else, I mean, how does that fit in with, with, I mean, I know we've all year we've talked about it, the stock market and this kind of strange liftoff we saw in the first half, and you would probably also say its decline it fits with this pattern as well. Well, that's right. No, the, the real question is, and I have this all the time, debate with clients, you know, if you're really thinking the dollar rolls here and rates are, uh, come in and oil, well, then you've got to be bullish on the stock market. Hmm. I mean, the market will respond positively. The thing about relationships, there's inverse relationships, right, and they're direct relationships, and they're not always quite as um, sort of perfect as one would think. Let's take this. For instance, if there's a perfect inverse relationship between crude and the dollar. The dollar's surging over the last five months. Crude should be down at $30 a barrel. Exactly. Should have been collapsing, yet crude was rallying. And so uh, these things are good till they're not good. But look, even here on the chart on the dollar that's on the screen, that's a very steep and uncorrected intermediate move. And counter trend moves, whether you're going up or down or a part of charts and they're a part of investing. Quickly, so I think it's just, yeah. Because I, I can't resist sneaking this in then in the last five seconds we have. So then are you are you in the kind of year-end stock market rally camp? No. See, I ultimately think that you can get, which is the real issue, right? You can have lower rates and lower stocks. Ah, ah you were building up to that and I didn't even <laughs> let you get it. All right. Well, Carter, at least we All got right. it in. Thank you so much for your time today. We'll check you back bet. in soon. Carter Worth of Worth Charting. Hmm, something to ponder. Uh, meanwhile, we've been following this story all week in the largest healthcare worker strike in U.S. history. 75,000 Kaiser Permanente workers are now on strike from coast to coast as negotiations between Kaiser and its unions are on 
going. This is a live picket line in San Diego. The strike is expected to last just three days. In its latest release, the coalition of Kaiser Union says, in recent days, Kaiser executives maintaining aggressive threats of outsourcing became a sticking point in negotiations, especially at a time when the company is failing to retain key employees. In a year of many historic firsts, here's another one of them. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Stick around for more analysis on markets and the economy. You can sign up for my newsletter over at cnbc.com slash newsletters or using that QR code on your screen. And next on Power Lunch, an Apple downgrade at KeyBank. We've got the analyst behind the call with the Nasdaq outperforming today, actually. Tyler's getting ready. I'll join him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Remember the Thai cave rescue? What about the mission depicted in Black Hawk Down or the epic rescue shown in Captain Phillips? You've probably heard of all of these, but did you know that the U.S. Air Force Special Warfare played a pivotal role in all of them? These airmen are the most highly trained warriors on the planet. Other forces like the SEALs and Army Rangers call on them to provide skills no one else can. Not many people make the cut. If you think you can, visit AirForce.com to learn more.